AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for October 28th, 2014. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today we're joined by John Hogeboom. Welcome, John. Uh, good to be here. <laughs> and uh, we have uh, Jim Clausing online. How are you doing, Jim? Good. Glad to be back from training. Yeah, great. And, uh, well, Jim, what, uh, what kind of training were you taking? I was uh, taking a mobile device forensics class. All right. And uh, we always want to be paying attention to what's happening with mobile devices and uh, what could be hidden lurking in the corners of a mobile device. And uh, welcome, Matt. Matt Kaiser here. And uh, how are you doing, Matt? Doing pretty well. All right. Uh, it's the end of the Cybersecurity Awareness Month. Right. Um, hopefully I did enough of my part to educate the people around me in my life about the right way to behave online and, and what to be worried about. Uh, Halloween's coming up, so you know, things to be scared of is kind of a theme for the month. But um, yeah, I haven't heard about any Halloween cyber tricks yet. I'm not wishing for it either. Uh, I'm sure they're <laughs> happening, but <laughs> quite possibly so. Maybe recall the uh, the remote control light bulbs. We could. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Here's an opportunity How to for haunt a, a house. <laughs> <Right>. There's an <laughs> idea. There we go. So uh, welcome, folks. And uh, what we're going to, I'm Brian Rexrow, by the way. And uh, the first item we're going to talk about here is uh, actually we've got kind of a theme around advanced persistent threats. And we're going to kind of walk around the globe a little bit here. We'll give John a first, uh, first shot at it. And uh, I guess there seems to be a trend to number these groups. Yes. Well, various, um, various organizations out there will number them. So uh, this, this one in particular is uh, a report from FireEye who, you know, they acquired Mandiant sometime maybe early this year, last year, I can't remember. Mandiant is pretty well known as a APT incident response organization mm -hmm. uh, to come in and assist you with uh, uh, targeted attacks inside your network. In any event, they, um, uh, they came out with an interesting report. Uh, we talk a lot about China-oriented nation-state targeted you know, APT attacks. Mm -hmm. This one, they're pretty sure, is sourcing out of Russia. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are a couple of interesting things. It's a pretty good detailed report. I recommend people go check it out. Right. Uh, there's a few takeaways uh, in terms of just the highlights of it. So uh, the one interesting aspect of this is, unlike China, they're not really targeting intellectual property. We see intellectual property theft is a pretty mainstream kind of piece of intelligence that they try to get. Mm -hmm. However, the Russian actors here seem to be trying to get just intelligence on uh, defense and geopolitical type areas, right. uh, organizations, and that more information than proprietary information, uh, mm -hmm. just information about what organizations are doing and, and uh, defense type things. Right. Um, it, just, just on that topic, I mean, it's interesting to compare and contrast. Assuming that the, the allegations are correct, and we right. do sort of a little correct uh, uh, comparison here, uh, clearly from a political, geopolitical, and uh, you know, nation-state conflict point of view, Russia is sort of right in the middle of, of the concerns there. Whereas, comparatively speaking, China is really kind of a manufacturing engine. And, uh, and so when you consider those two aspects, it really does kind of lead in that, in that sort of direction, the, the difference between the, uh, the targets that might be 
How, right. However, I will say China, we're pretty sure, are interested in geopolitical type things. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, more to economic. A great degree. Uh, sometimes, uh, but sometimes also more um, political motivated type things mm -hmm. uh, that they want to know what organizations that might be uprising within their country right. might be yeah. underway or interested in uh, things of that nature. So, you know, it's not entirely that they're only focused on the financial, uh, but we have seen some other things that they're, they're mm -hmm. interested in. Uh, in terms of this actor set, though, which they believe to be Russian, some of the things is they're pretty sure it's Russian based on uh, the malware events when it's compiled timestamps, mm -hmm. as well as the fact that it's using a Russian language setting uh, in the malware when it's compiled. The uh, types of targets that they're targeting are mostly countries in that Eastern European sector, so Georgia, Eastern European governments, military sector in those nations, mm -hmm. uh, and also security organizations. And they trace this back to probably starting at least since 2007, which is also interesting because a lot of the China stuff seems to start, well, I shouldn't say it should, there's a, a heightened awareness heightened around awareness. that 2007 with Basically. Operation Aurora yeah. and all that stuff that came out. The, uh, the other interesting aspect I thought was a lot of the exfiltration activity that goes on um, is uh, done via email. Uh, so once mm -hmm. the implant is on the infected machine, it will use that machine's email server. It might go directly to the email server or through their client. It can search mm -hmm. for the client. So there's the Sourface. These are some of the terms uh, for the malware families that they have. But Sourface, I believe, is uh, one of the downloaders that pulls the stuff down. It's more of a dropper, and it puts um, this um, uh, evil toss, which is mm -hmm. a backdoor that will use email, your email client or email server to send uh, information back out as an exfiltration path. And uh, Chopstick is another modular implant that they've seen. So they have a bunch of different samples that kind of fit into this family uh, of, uh, of activity. Anyway, I thought it was interesting, especially the email aspect of it. And, mm -hmm. you know, we've seen other things use email, but not so much in the nation state, or at least the stuff that we've investigated right. for the most yeah. part. Usually they're just pushing it out either through HTTP or some direct connection to some, you know, go-between server, some, you know, mm -hmm. exfiltration drop point that they're using, probably another compromised machine. But in this case, they seem to be using uh, email, yeah. uh, which is interesting. Any insight into the format of the emails? Or I, I presume it varies from... It does vary. Um, they, they talked a little bit in the article about some of the subject lines and stuff. I should note that they use spear phishing, which is very typical. So they'll target mm -hmm. spear fish towards a particular victim that they want to uh, penetrate. From there, the implant will try to send email back out. And in at least one case, it was something, I can't remember, something about driver's license, like a list of driver's license was the initial one in. And then the subject line back out again had something with that as well. Hmm. They do, there's some really good technical indicators that I didn't get into in terms of putting it on here. but. They tell you the name of the file that they wrap it up as and attach to the email and send out. Mm -hmm. uh, so those are things to look at, look for, as well as the DLL and various files that get dropped with MD5 sums and things that you go look for. However, okay. it really was mostly targeting Eastern European countries. So right. unless you're in that part of the world, you might not really see this stuff out there, mm -hmm. uh, unless you're, you know, incident handler or somebody trying to help somebody in that part of the world. Right. Uh, but I think one of, the, uh, one of the, the values of a program like this and investigating other types of, uh, you know, malware that may be targeting other organizations is try to get some insight into how things might evolve and how, mm -hmm. you know, other organizations should be paying attention to 
you know, if the, if the target should change, it's like you're likely to see a lot of this same, similar techniques. And so it is something that uh, I would suggest organizations pay attention to. Yes. So uh, I guess your recommendation, take a look at the report, dig into it a little bit. And actually, if you have feedback that you'd like to share with us or perhaps even a little collaboration on the topic, uh, we're certainly welcome, welcome, welcoming that. No, that's a good point, Brian, that you said that, you know, even though you may not be directly affected by this particular campaign, you should still be paying attention to the tools and the techniques used. I mean, mm -hmm. last week, I believe it was Stan was talking about, we saw the sandworm exploit being mm -hmm. used by completely different threat actors for completely different purposes. Absolutely but, right. You know, you would use the same methods to detect that sort of weaponized PowerPoint file. Mm -hmm. So I, I totally agree with you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Okay, and uh, let's see here. Let's move on to... Uh, I guess this is uh, Matt, you're <laughs> covering this one. Uh, forgive me, I'm a little discombobulated here, but uh, yet another threat actor group uh, with a different number. <laughs> uh, these guys do have a different number uh, and actually a name, which makes it a little easier to remember. Uh, so this was a coordinated effort by a number of security co companies. Uh, they were actually able to disrupt and degrade the, the actions of a particular group that they're calling Group 72 mm -hmm. or Axiom. And some people, uh, I think they're, they're relating it to a known group called Hidden Links as well. Mm -hmm. It's not clear where the lines are drawn there. Um, but the report seems to also suggest that a number of similar campaigns that use similar techniques or similar infrastructure were awaited. And that includes big names like Aurora, Voho, mm -hmm. Elderwood, Deputy Dog, Ephemeral Hydra, Snowman, I mean, the list goes on and on right. as to who they say these guys are similar to and may actually be the same as. Mm -hmm. But this is a very well-funded, they believe, Chinese group, and they, are, they even went so far as to say Chinese intelligence related. Mm -hmm. um, so the, um, the group of, of companies working together uh, actually managed to clean up 43,000, I want to say, individual installations of malware led to this group, including, um, I'm gonna say, 100 to 200 um, instances of their most advanced malware, which is mm -hmm. HiKit, which probably people have heard of already. Um, seems that this group was using a, a number of different levels of tools, which we've right. long suspected, where they would start off with the very low and easy stuff off the shelf, things like Ghost Rat or PlugX, and if that gets captured, you know, they would move on to a higher level. Um, mm -hmm. Darius B, Deputy Dog, is the, somewhere there in the middle. And then at the very top, you have the high kit and, and another kit that I'm, I'm forgetting the name of right now, Zox. That's probably right, it. Right, right. Um, so like you said, each, each level gets burned and they move on to the higher techniques. Mm -hmm. So it gets kind of interesting. Um, the number of actual compromised machines that they found suggests that these guys went from a, um, the tactic, tactic of sort of not mass exploitation, but large group targeted exploitation. Right. And then from there, we're able to determine which machines had value and then do a second level of penetration onto those particular machines to gather intel. Right. So these guys are looking for very specific things. Um, mm -hmm. the, the target industries are listed in the document. And their, their, their TTPs are pretty much the best of the best of what you've, you've heard of from APT groups, all the way from mm -hmm. using their own custom malware with rootkits, to using administrative tools to be hidden, to right. using proxies within the, the, the country of the target. You know, it's, it's the hits list, really. Right, right. So and we, I think we've seen some similar trends in that the, uh, where we, we tended to see in the past very targeted spear fishes, mm -hmm. it seems like there are some more, I'll use the term blanket operations, small blankets, but blanket mm -hmm. operations targeting an organization, seeing who becomes a victim and then perhaps being selective about where they actually go within that organization. In fact, perhaps some more 
machines that are kind of just sitting idle and kind of ready to go if there were a need to go in and, and dig further. I see you nodding your yeah, head, Yeah, no, I mean, there's definitely <laughs> been some cases where they, certain actor sets in this nation state type stuff have, instead of being very focused and targeted and targeting mm -hmm. maybe a very small select number of people in an organization, like less than five, to doing a kind of like uh, gunshot, just hit, mm -hmm. trying to hit a whole bunch of people like regular malware does. Right. Very undirected, somewhat untargeted. And then go look at what you have here and say, oh, I got three machines inside, mm -hmm. you know, XYZ Aerospace Company. Maybe I'll get into those and laterally move over to whoever's machine I really want mm -hmm. uh, to get the information off of who I right. would have targeted originally in, a, in my past type of approaches. And that's a point that's made in the report is that um, they do this and it seems to be in order to maintain more of a presence and have more longer persistence period. Mm -hmm. It also, of course, allows you more freedom in lateral movement, but I think once mm -hmm. you have a certain number of machines, it becomes a much harder problem to try and clean them all. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned the 43,000 machines. Is that, is that related to the MS? The, the I'm not Microsoft quite sure that they did. I was, I was going to say they did say that they pushed out an MSRT. They were working with Microsoft on this. So Microsoft used their malicious software removal tool, pushed out signatures for HiKit and a couple of the other tools. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're using MSRT and you are infected, you should be aware of it by now. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure exactly if that figure was a result of any, any MSRT testing that they did. Right. Um, okay. But like I said, it's a, it's a huge set of. Uh, Victims. Yeah, that's a yeah. much larger number than we would typically see Definitely. with in Absolutely. terms of APT infections. Now, just out of care, I, I don't have any personal experience with this. When if, if MSRT cleans something, does it actually notify you that it cleans something, or is it just kind of you know spooky in the background? I'm not sure if it notifies you. I feel like I've heard that MSRT might actually report something back to Microsoft. So they can oh, have sure telemetry. Yes. So perhaps I, I, that I know because I've I know that they report yeah. statistics related to mm -hmm. uh, items they found. I'm just curious if whether an end user would know that their machine had been cleaned of something, and uh, you know I think it would be a, a nice courtesy to report that. But I just don't know for a fact that it does. So. And I've always been confused. What's the difference between their security essentials, which is kind of like an AV type of free AV that Microsoft offers, and that MSRT tool, and how they interplay or whether they do or not, you know, I've never been quite sure of that myself. I, I so. think the MSRT is more like an ambush. Okay. I mean, it, it, from a from a malware's point of view, whereas the, you know, it's like a stinger kind of Yeah, it's kind tool. of a stinger thing, yes. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's kind of catching them off guard and, you know, getting a, you know, based on some insights and uh, going and, and cleaning it out, whereas the security essentials is something that's sort of always around and you can always right, test right, against yeah. it. So anyway, that's, a, that's my layman's. <laughs> way of describing it. Yeah, and it probably uh, leaves some traces in the event logs. Yeah, I suspect it would at least do that. Yeah, I just don't know if it you know, provides a pop-up or some, some kind of a notification to the user. Because it, I, I think, Matt, you kind of suggested that folks would know about it by now, but I'm not sure how, whether folks would know about it or not. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good was, point. Uh, observation there. So, uh, you know, we've been talking about Shellshock and, uh, and Poodle more recently. Uh, Shellshock isn't gone yet. Right. <laughs> We're still uh, kind of paying attention to that. John, maybe you yeah, can tell we, us a little bit about some of the nuances that are Yeah, so out. we, you know, we've seen and we kind of expected to see this, right? Shellshock, mm -hmm. when it first came out, we're like, oh, wow, this is, you know, obviously they're going to start targeting CGI bin uh, type web server 
activity here, and then we all started scratching our heads, think about where else do we use CGI bin that's exposed externally and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, I'm trying to think we found, there was another one that came out at some point in between, but regardless, uh, the guys over at ISC Sands put out a, a diary blog posting uh, that was interesting in that they observed uh, a bunch of web servers at web hosting companies not quite sure if these were compromised via this exploit or if they just happened to be compromised by some other means and mm -hmm. turned into bots to start doing this scanning. But they've been seeing scanning uh, emerging from those web hosts uh, targeting SMTP servers. Right. Uh, and in like the to, the from, the subject line headers, they're just stacking in the shell shock parameters. Now I'm not quite sure if there's any particular type of, you know, send mail is not a CGI bin as far as I'm aware. So I don't know what type of mail handler is potentially out there that might be vulnerable to this. I haven't really heard if there's been any successful exploitation of this. Mm -hmm. Just something to be maybe aware of, let the people know, hey, right. this is something you might want to keep an eye on or think about if you hadn't thought about, oh, right, my SMTP server is some homegrown thing or whatever that you might have uh, written that does shell out to bash for some reason. Mm -hmm. Well, and when, when the alerts about Shellshock first came out, there one of the things that they said might possibly be affected was postfix. You know, obviously, if you've updated Bash on your postfix server, that's not going to be an issue. But the the other possibility was that you know some sort of you know auto reply something that you've got running on the backside that parses the headers, proc mail or or some homegrown script that you use that receives your email and auto replies that you're out of the office mm -hmm. or whatever. Something like that could also be the target. That's a really good point. So proc mail, I could definitely see people doing stuff with shell, you know, shelling out via proc mail to mm -hmm. their own little script to do some kind of response or handling of that email. It's interesting. Right. Okay, good point. Yeah, yeah but I, I thought it was interesting that, you know, it, it's covering basically all of the headers you can think of, the received, the to, the from, the cc, the subject, the message ID, comments, keywords, resent from. I mean, they were just shoving it in every one yeah. of these headers. What they were reporting is that, also a little bit interesting, is that it tries to use pretty much everything on a system. Curl, LWP download, uh, wget, fetch. It tries to get the file, this ex.txt file, off of a, um, a particular website and then run it. So it's really a Perl script. Uh, you see mm -hmm. at the very end there, it runs perl.ex.txt, and then it removes itself. And what that is is a, um, it's a, just a kind of simple IRC bot program written in Perl. It mm -hmm. uh, has some DDoS functionality and the ability to download additional executables and whatnot. Right. Uh, I think it, it, perhaps this, uh, this IP address or the whatever is, was hosting there is, has been blocked at this yes, point. Yes, I was not able to get a copy of that at yeah. this point. Okay. So. All right. Uh, and then, uh, you know, we were talking about Shellshock and, you know, I guess, Jim, this, there are probably a whole plethora of little vulnerabilities that are, are going to pop up now, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Mikhail Zalewski was one of the ones who found a number of the vulnerabilities in Bash that, you know, the whole... All four CVEs or six CVEs that we ended up with, he found a number of them. He uh, did a blog post just yesterday, I think, that 
basically his public service announcement was don't run strings on untrusted files. <laughs> basically, he was fuzzing lib bfd in the um, in most Linux distributions and found a, uh, a, a, a vulnerability, basically a unchecked bounds, you know, buffer overflow kind of thing. And uh, the, now libbfd is part of the GNU bin utils package. Um, it's a library that's incorporated in a number of, of executable strings, OBJ dump. You know, his, his thing here was that this could potentially be used to um, craft a, a malicious binary to attack the guys who were trying to analyze the malicious binaries. Because a lot of us, you know, when we get a malicious binary, we do a fair amount of the analysis on a, a Linux system, even though the malware is targeting Windows. Um, yeah, and strings is one of the things that should be, you know, fairly innocuous. You just pull out the... You know, the ASCII parts of it or the uh, Unicode mm -hmm. parts of it so you can you know, see what might not be obfuscated. Now, the the simple workaround for right now is to either use the BSD version of strings rather than the GNU version or use strings-a. Um, the dash A flag uh, tells strings to look at the entire uh, file. The, basically, what libbfd does is it pulls out just the initialized and loaded sections. The libbfd is responsible for, for parsing out the sections, and strings without the dash A option will just look at the initialized sections or and the loaded mm -hmm. sections. So if you do strings dash A, you'll look at the entire file, and it bypasses the libbfd, so it doesn't encounter this particular vulnerability. I, I suspect that this will get patched fairly soon, but it's uh, likely been around for quite a while as well, just like the you know the bash vulnerability had been around for fifteen or twenty years. This one's probably been around for a while, um, and it's you know just now that folks are starting to you know run the fuzzers against it and try to find all of them. But uh, it, it it was kind of interesting. It's probably not a, a big deal for most of us. I when I use strings, I almost always use strings dash a anyway because I want to look at the entire mm -hmm. file. So I, I I thought it was interesting that you know just another one of these uh, utilities that's been around for a while that folks haven't been oh, looking absolutely. at. Absolutely, and it, you know it seems so innocuous. <laughs> and it was funny how you pointed it out earlier that uh, you know this is the 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 advisory kind of suggests is don't run strings on an untrusted file, and that's as you. I kind of pointed out or at least alluded to and that's probably 90% of its use if not more than right. that. Mm -hmm. So uh, you know that's uh, basically the first thing you do on an untrusted file is run strings and see what kind of nastiness kind of creeps itself up. Yeah but the, as I said this this affects the GNU version of strings not the BSD version mm -hmm. so if you're running so it, it, it essentially only affects Linux it doesn't affect you know the, the BSD right. strains, or probably Solaris or HPUX or any of those, because uh, those probably are not using the libbfd, which is where the vulnerability actually now, exists. Is it, it, did I get the impression that perhaps this vulnerability had been reported some time ago? Uh, 
Well, the, there have been other issues that have been reported with strings. Um, I'm not sure that this exact one had been noted before. When I first read the the blog post, I thought that was what he was saying. But when I looked at the the bug report that Tavis Ormandy uh, actually reported nine years ago, it was it was a similar issue, but I don't believe it was the same uh, the okay. same bug. And I guess that kind of leads to the you know the notion that you, when I and I think this realization is coming out a little bit more that when there is a specific bug that's been identified that perhaps there are other you know that it's an indicator of potentially something in uh, systemic that is if it occurs in one place it could possibly occur in a number of places or in, you know perhaps in a variety of forms that are closely related so I think to your point. Um, perhaps it wasn't the exact same thing, but uh, it would have been perhaps prudent at the time to take a little closer look at what other things that, you know, problems that might be very similar. So, and as you pointed out, it's probably been in there quite quite some time. All right, thanks, Jim. I think that's uh, you know I think that helps to round out the the, the programming for today. Uh, next topic here, we're going to take a look at the internet weather for the last week or so, and uh, we've been talking about this first item for some time. It's kind of looming. At, I, I kind of see this as a I, first thing that comes to mind is that uh, the train that says, I think I can, I think I can, it keeps trying. Uh, this relates to reflection attacks using uh, SNMP, and there continue to be attacks along those lines. Uh, we're seeing more uh, sources participating in it. We're seeing more frequent use of this protocol for these types of attacks. I'd like to think that that is suggestive of improvements in other places like, uh, you know, making it harder to do uh, reflection attacks with DNS and, and uh, S <laughs> SSDP right. and uh, other related protocols. I'm not sure that's entirely the case at this point. But in any case, we're seeing some attacks that uh, are using SNMP more frequently more specifically been in the last couple of weeks, a higher density, it's not really significantly larger attacks overall. We are seeing some cases where many addresses within a, a target address block are being uh, hit at the same time. So it's basically spreading those attacks across a number of addresses, which is something that you want to pay attention to when you're working with a uh, mitigation service provider, for example. Uh, that is, the tendency is to want to be surgical about, you know, mitigating specific addresses, but if you have any suspicion this type of attack might take place, you might want to try to uh, put more addresses through the, uh, the mitigation platform. Uh, there's, there are trade-offs associated with that, so uh, make sure that you discuss it with your mitigation service provider. And then uh, I, I wanted to just point out that this particular graph was capped at 200 megabits per second. There are certainly attacks that have been much bigger than that. So these aren't really big attacks from this point of view. Now, keep in mind, I'm not really showing what might contributions might exist from fragmentation. This is specifically for this protocol. And uh, SNMP does have the potential to create a significant amount of amplification, which could span across fragmented packets. So uh, I wouldn't use these uh, numbers as a sort of a strong measure of how big the attacks might have been. Next item here is scan probes on port 1434 UDP. And John, you know, you were talking about exfiltration using emails or, or mm -hmm. malware that would use email as a communications path. And I immediately got reminiscent and started thinking about code red which was basically a worm that propagated through email. And, uh, and the, you know, 
perhaps it was because I was just investigating this particular case of probing activity on 1434 UDP, which is associated with Microsoft SQL database and is the port that was associated with the slammer worm back in 2003. Now, this particular probing activity that we're seeing now is from a single US-based hosting provider. That is, we're not seeing a lot of sources doing this activity. It does not look like a worm by any definition. In fact, it also does not have that characteristic sign of the slammer worm. The slammer worm, for the folks that remember that, that far back, had a very characteristic 505-byte payload where it actually, the packet was the malware itself. It was a very compact uh, payload that was able to send a packet, infect the machine, exploit and infect the machine at the same time, and then uh, continue, that machine would start uh, propagating, trying to propagate itself as well. Uh, it was actually a very, you know, like I said, very compact piece of malware. And uh, as a consequence of that, it was also very efficient at creating a lot of traffic on the network. So I, I went and dug up through the archives and took a look at uh, some of our measurements from back in the day. Now this graph is very bit different. This one actually was generated using Excel. We didn't have the graphing tools back in 2003, uh, but we did have early phases of our analysis activity. So this is uh, basically a graph showing that activity over the span of 30 days. And the significance here, and I should point out as well, this is on a logarithmic scale. So whereas we're normally using a linear scale when we talk about the weather report here, this one's on a logarithmic scale because the change was so significant. That is, when the worm actually hit here, and this was actually, I think, on uh, January 25th in 2003, the change in activity on that port was four orders of magnitude change. What was very interesting about this, and I think it's, uh, again, very uh, an important aspect of taking a look at what is going on on your network, there were indicators as much as 25 days earlier where we saw two orders of magnitude change in the amount of activity, which you know we've never really been able to confirm, but we have some uh, reason to believe may have been indicators of the process of you know trying to create a worm. Perhaps it wasn't as effective as they thought, and so uh, uh, maybe it was a, a problem with the randomization and the addresses that you know the target addresses, for example. And keep in mind, you know, when you're trying to do very compact code, that may be a challenging thing is to create a good randomizer or be able to access a good randomizer. And that was, in fact, uh, the case. There was a, even in the worm that propagated, ultimately, it uh, did have some problems or a flaw in the randomization uh, of how it found target addresses to go to. So, uh, again, there was some speculation associated with this, but I thought it would be uh, kind of nice to reminisce and go back or, 11 years or so and uh, take a look at uh, one of the things. This was actually one of the things that started instigating us to uh, take a closer look at what is going on on the network and what kinds of behaviors might be indicators of uh, events that will be coming forth in the future. Taking a look at the top 10 most probe ports, uh, not really anything that sticks out here in terms of significant changes. Uh, there is a little bit of a jump in activity on port 80 TCP. And, uh, but it, you know, when I took a cl little closer work, look at it, it did not really indicate any change in trend or activity around that. In fact, we saw much more significant probing activity around the time when the, uh, uh, now I'm getting a, a shell shock. brain block here. Actually, it was uh, September 25th, which one was, uh, it was the shell shock. Shell shock, yeah. Yeah, so we saw significantly larger activity trending in terms of density as well as the size of 
the aggression associated with the probing activity, that sort of died off. And so in any case, the port 80 is not as significant as perhaps it suggests here. So taking a look at the list, uh, port 53 UDP probing activity, we've talked about that many times, it continues. Uh, port 20, and that's uh, in the, uh, excuse me, Next item uh, is uh, port 22 TCP, that's uh, SSH, brute force password guessing activities. Next one we're going to take a look at a little bit more closely. This is 9064 TCP. We believe that to be associated with uh, hunting for proxies. Uh, I have not found specifically what type of proxy or what this is. We don't know if it's really a backdoor associated with uh, malware that uh, allows uh, a proxy capability, but uh, it does appear to be uh, based on our honeypot data. Uh, looking for some sort of uh, uh, proxy capability and testing for that. Uh, next one is port 445 TCP followed by 80 TCP, we talked about that. 23 TCP, that's again password guessing activities, port 8080 TCP, proxy 8088 TCP and 8080 TCP uh, next to each other. And then uh, last item here is port 1900 UDP, which is that uh, SSDP, uh, simple service delivery protocol being used in uh, reflection attack activity. Uh, taking a little closer look at port 9064, we're looking at 30 days of activity here. And as you can see, there's clearly an upward trend. So uh, regardless of the motivation behind this, the, uh, this kind of suggests that the, um, uh, they are being relatively successful and uh, continuing to ramp up the activity to look for these, uh, this application on port 9064. Again, very suggestive of looking for uh, proxies. Now, we should keep in mind, uh, most of the sources here they're doing this are uh, appear to be from China. Uh, there are two basic motivations that uh, at least I'm aware of for looking for proxies. One would be to uh, subvert censorship activities that might be taking place in that country. And uh, the other might be to anonymize their activities for doing other types of attack activity. I couldn't tell you which of the two that might be the strongest motivation here. Uh, next item here is the top 10 most sources doing the probing. And uh, at the top of the list, as usual, port 445 TCP followed by 23 TCP, again, uh, compromising many of those uh, security surveillance camera DVRs yeah. and other uh, internet insecure thing items that are not well managed and patched, uh, followed by 80 TCP and then uh, 27015, which we associated with gaming. Although I should point out, I did see some of the probing activity uh, that we've seen using that as a source port and so there are some perhaps uh, overlaps. So actually, in fact, I think I saw some reflection attack activity yes. that was using uh, so that. So just like any other UDP protocol, right. it can be used for reflection. And I don't think it's real big from what I remember looking yeah. at the statistics, but it can be used as a reflection vector. Yeah. So. so I haven't really looked at this in the context of a reflection vector, but perhaps we should take a little closer look at that. Uh, followed by some ICMP activity here, 8080 TCP, port 5000 UDP, which uh, we've uh, kind of determined that that is a, uh, a, a innocuous activity. So that's our show for today. I'd like to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at threattrack at list.att.com. Uh, and you can find ThreatTrack in a variety of places here on the ATT Tech Channel at att.com slash threattrack. Uh, we're also available on YouTube as well as iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Security. And if you were previously using the, uh, the handle uh, Threat Track, uh, I think we've uh, turned that, uh, that particular handle off. So make sure you follow ATT Security. I'd like to thank you, Jim, for joining us. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, John. 
I'm Brian Rexroad. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T Threat Track are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.